I thank you, God, that I am not a woman, a Gentile, or a Samaritan. And I would ask that the Samaritans not be included in the resurrection. That's the prayer of a Pharisee in Jesus' day. That's how deep this wound between the Samaritans and the Jews were. That they would even pray that they would not see the resurrection. There were words that were used by the Jews to describe the Samaritans. Half-breeds because of their intermarrying with other nations. Detestable. Cursed of God. Religious liberals. Unclean. Whatever the word, the dispute between them was long. It was like a totally big dysfunctional family between them, divided between the north and the south in the kingdoms. Those tribes who were in the north who had been carried off, who while they were gone in exile, had become part of other nations. Versus the south, the southern kingdom that was left, which was Judah, out of which was to come the Messiah. Not only that, but when things would go well between the kingdoms, when the southern kingdom would prosper, then the northern kingdoms, the Samaritans, would say, well, we are brothers. We are blood brothers. Let us share in your joy and prosper. And when things went well and Jerusalem would be attacked and they would call for reinforcements, the Samaritans would turn their backs on them and utterly reject them. Jews would go miles out of their way walking so that they would never have to set foot in the area of Samaria, though it would have been a quicker journey. That's the backdrop for this interchange today that we see in the Gospel. Here again, those words as John records them for us. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Jews would not use the drinking vessels of the Samaritans. To use one of their drinking vessels would make them unclean. It was something unthought of. And yet this woman comes to draw water from the well. And Jesus, by his garb, by what he's wearing, she can tell who he is, asks her for a drink of water. And so she responds to him. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John gives us the parenthetical for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. What she's really saying to Jesus in a snide way is, you pious Jews, you orthodox Jews, you who are upright and follow what you believe to be the law, you don't associate with us. You don't drink from our stuff. It makes you unclean. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. You see, Jesus responds to her in a way that she doesn't expect. 
Jesus responds to her to say, I'm not going to take up this argument of uncleanliness of who I am and who you are. Those are man-made boundaries. Those have to do with rituals and liturgies and rules. What you need to understand is who I am. And if you truly had a clue who I am, there would be nothing that would stand in your way. Nothing would stop you from coming to receive what I have to give. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? You see, really, she's mocking him. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And she says, our father, meaning she's claiming the bloodline to Jacob, although that was what belonged to the Jews, and they didn't believe the Samaritans any longer had the bloodline. But you have nothing. This well is a hundred feet deep from what history tells us. You're not greater. You're just an Orthodox Jew who sits here and asks me for something. And so they interchange for a while discussing water. Jesus talking about living water that would well up inside one for the gift of eternal life. And she, not understanding, continues to think of it as earthly water. Of water that she wants so that she doesn't have to come anymore to the well to draw water. She came at noon. The time to get water was in the early morning before the heat of the day. But she came at noon for a reason. Because at noon, the well wouldn't be crowded with the other women in the town getting water for their families. At noon, she might be alone. At noon, there would be no one to ridicule or to make fun of her. No one to point a finger at her, even in her own community. And so Jesus responds to her and says, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true, sir, the woman said. I can see that you are a prophet. Suddenly, in this interchange between the two of them, Jesus knows intimate details about her life. Things that only she knows, things that were not revealed to him. And she perceives that he is no ordinary person, that he is, in fact, a prophet. And so she asks him another question, a question that has to do with the heart of the controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews. And she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Jerusalem where David worshipped, Jerusalem where the temple was, Jerusalem where all the Jews gathered to worship God, or Mount Gerizim in the northern kingdom. Where is it that we are truly supposed to worship? You're a prophet. Answer that question. And so Jesus responds. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Worship. The place of true worship. You see, in Jerusalem, the Jews believed that the temple was the place of true worship. It was there that heaven touched earth in the Holy of Holies when God would come down to be among His people. That was the true place of worship. No other temple, no other mountain, no other place would house God. God dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, neither place is where true worship is. True worship is in a person now. Only cults seek places that God dwells on earth in a house made with human hands. God has come down now in Jesus. Jesus who says to her, I am. The words that revealed to her, the words that were revealed to Moses on that mountain when he said, who shall I say has sent me? And God replied, I am has sent you. Yahweh. Jesus said those words to her. I am the one. I am the place now of true worship. It is no longer Jerusalem. It is no longer another mountain. It is in me. I have come to bring the waters of life. And we see Jesus again touch people. To break boundaries. To go across lines that were taboo in society. To bring hope and life. You know, that woman viewed herself by her actions as valueless, as someone who was ridiculed and reproached by society. She had no hope of ever being part of any kind of society that would welcome her until Jesus came. In her day, there were three groups of people. Three groups in Jerusalem, those good Orthodox Jew that made up that ruling body we've talked about, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. And one commentator describes each group. The Sadducees were formalized. They were impersonal. They were legal in their religious discipline of how they looked at people and how they looked at the law. The Pharisees were lay lawyers. They were self-righteous. They were radical in their pursuit of the law. They were a pious, separate group removed from any humanity whatsoever. And the scribes. The scribes were the experts. Experts in interpretation of the law. Experts in application of the law. They were brilliant, but they were cold and without feeling. Those religious leaders of Jesus' day decided who had access to God and who did not. And they were cold and calculating and rigid in it. And Jesus comes to this woman 
Someone that no one wanted to associate. Someone cut off. Someone outside. Someone who had no access to God in her day. You know, Tony Campalo, the noted evangelist, tells about a time in Brooklyn when he was serving at a church in the early days of the AIDS crisis, when the churches in his area were asked if they would hold a funeral for a man who had died of AIDS. One by one, he says, all the local churches refused any of the people who were asking to hold that funeral. Finally, one of Tony's friends, a pastor by the name of Jim, agreed to have the funeral. When he was done, Tony sat down with him and said, Jim, what was it like having that funeral? He said, you know, it was one of the hardest things I think that I've ever done. We gathered at the funeral home. I was there with the casket and there was maybe 20 to 30 of Jim's friends gathered. No one ever raised their head. No one ever looked up. No one ever spoke. We finished the funeral and went to the graveside. Again, in silence. It was almost as if they were a picture that I was looking at, not real people. There I was on one side of the casket all alone. There they were on the other side, never looking up again, never saying a word. I finished the committal. I said the benediction, and the body was lowered into the ground, and I turned to leave. He said, as I walked away, I stopped for a moment, and I turned back. And I said to the group that was gathered there, is there anything else that I can do for you? He said, one of the men looked up and said to me, you didn't read the 23rd Psalm. Don't they usually read the 23rd Psalm at funerals? He said, so I opened my Bible and I read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He said, I finished that scripture and someone else in the group looked at me. He said, isn't there a place, could you read from it, that talks about nothing being able to separate us from the love of Jesus? He said, so I opened that passage. The passage that says, neither height nor depth nor powers nor principalities, nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said it was still one of the most powerful moments I ever had to read those scriptures to a group of people who was ostracized, who was cut off from society, that the local church had turned their back on and said, we want nothing to do with you. He said it was a moment that I could show the compassion of Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Every time we see Jesus in the Scriptures, He is the one who is breaking down laws of separation, breaking down those laws of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, breaking what they thought were Sabbath laws, breaking ritual laws, opposing them, seeking to integrate those who were outside of the community who had no access because of his compassion to invite them in to true worship, to worship him. The late theologian Henry Nouwen makes the following statement I'm going to have on the screen for you. He says the following in talking about compassion. Compassion is not pity. 
Pity lets us stay at a distance. It is condescending. Compassion is not sympathy. Sympathy is for superiors over inferiors. Compassion is not charity. Charity is for the wealthy to continue their status over the poor. He says, compassion is born of Christ. It means entering into the other person's problems. It means taking on the burdens of the others, standing in the other person's shoes. It is born of Christ. True compassion. You know, in our series, The Compassion of Christ, it's based on that passage in Galatians, Galatians 2.20. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who gives me the ability to have His compassion, to welcome those who are ostracized and who are cut off by society to reach across barrier lines to bring the true compassion of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't worship in truth. Truth we hold to because the Word of God tells us what truth is. But do we have truth with compassion? Or do we have truth with just legal rigidity and coldness and excellence? You see, there's a difference. Jesus never wavered on the truth, on the truth of who he was, of what he had come to do to reconcile the world. As we heard St. Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. People think that many times in the church there is only a place of reproach and ridicule, only a place where doors are barred to keep out their access. But Jesus came that we might reach across barriers, that we might reach to the least and the lowliest, that we might reach to people who find no access anywhere else. And before we ever want to turn our backs, we need to remember the words, there is never their sin without first looking at ourselves and saying, there is my sin. Jesus gives us compassion in worship to bring us into His presence, to bring the world into His presence, to worship Him in the truth of who He is, drawn by His Spirit, to bind us together as people of love and compassion. May we ever be that kind of church, the people who know what we have received when we were cut off, when we were ostracized, when we were outside of the community because of our sin. And God reached to each one of us in the compassion and love of Jesus Christ that we might truly worship Him, the one who brings heaven to earth and touches each one of us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this incredible gift of your love and mercy that you reach to each one of us, not when we had done so many wonderful things, not that you could look on us and say what wonderful children you are, but when we turned against you, when we ran our own course, when we were cut off and hopeless, you died for every one of us. 
Lord, may we always know your compassion in our worship. May we be people who bring truth with compassion, knowing that you died for everyone in this world, knowing that you came to seek and to save all who were lost. Lord, bind us together in that love, in that grace, and in the forgiveness that you give us always in your name. Amen.